As you're taking your Bibles, turning to Romans chapter 8, that's where we're, we are. We're back in Romans chapter 8. I wanted to just extend my, my greetings to you and um, my thanks to you for just being so willing to accommodate. I know these are unusual times, and we're, we're constantly kind of having to, to navigate what's going on and make adjustments, and just really thankful for you. I was thinking and praying about our church family this week, and really grateful just for how you just so willingly and faithfully um, work with us and, and are so willing to just serve one another, serve the Lord. All of you sitting out there, I see you. You can give me a big wave out there. You're sitting out there in the overflow. Good to see you. I see you. I'm so thankful you're here and for the sacrifice you're making. And those in the gym, I can't see you. But if you're there, really thankful for you and for the sacrifice you're making as well. I also want to extend just a really quick welcome to uh, Grace Fellowship Church. Pastor Julian sent me a, a text last night saying that they had to um, just an emergency cancel their service and so um, they, they encourage the church to tune in this morning. So if you are online as a part of our church or you're part of Grace Fellowship Church or you're just tuned in online, we're so thankful that you're here and we just are praying for you and thankful that you've joined us. Pray that you're blessed this morning as we dive into God's Word, specifically, like I said, into Romans chapter 8. I want to begin with this simple question, um, and it's this, how safe do you feel living under grace? If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, the Bible says, Paul has said in Romans, that you are under grace. How safe or how secure do you feel living under grace? Maybe let me ask it another way. How sure are you of your future? To entrust ourselves to the grace of God, the the free grace of God in Jesus Christ can often feel like we're falling backwards into the arms of a friend who may or not be there, may or may not be there. You know what I'm talking about, those uh, marriage course or team building exercises where, you know, you stand behind your friend or your partner and then you tell them to close their eyes and fall back into your arms. We all have this kind of natural reaction, most of us have this urge in those kind of moments to step back, to put a foot out, to protect or save ourselves. That's the the Romans 7 believer as we looked at uh, a few weeks ago. We landed on the place where we saw that Romans 7 individual, the Paul that he's talking about as, as a believer, but also recognizing that good people, good Christians disagree on whether or not that's Paul as a believer or an unbeliever. But, but we looked at it, and I think it's very compelling that, that Paul is this believer who, who wrestles, and that particular Paul in Romans 7 is the believer who's wrestling in the flesh, trusting in their own strength in the fight against sin. And so they feel this inner conflict and battle, and that battle is heightened by the sense of relying on their own strength instead of on the the strength of the Spirit of God. I think we are all, all tempted to add a self-reliance to our Christian life, which is why the Romans 7 experience is so common in our lives, why we feel it so deeply so often. But when we live there in self-reliance, it proves to be fatal to our spiritual life. Romans 8 is the Christian trusting in God and in the strength that is provided only by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is not quite absent in Romans 7. We see the, the, the evidences of the Spirit through the inner desires of the heart to obey the law of God. But here in chapter 8, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is mentioned 19 times. 
telling us, listen, that this is the place we need to learn to live as Christians, under the power and influence of the Spirit of God in our lives. Romans chapter 8 is an invitation to fall back, to close your eyes, and to fall back into the loving and strong arms of God, to be sure that He will catch you, and to believe that you are secure in Him, to resist the urge to step back and save yourselves. In fact, gospel security is the umbrella that overarches this entire chapter. And this is the ministry of the Spirit of God to us, and even this morning. And listen to the security that that the Spirit of God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, wants us to know and enjoy. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 8. We're going to read the first four verses. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul's kind of summing up his entire argument that that began in chapter 5, that we looked at in chapter 6 and chapter 7, and we need to see how specifically Romans chapter 7 and 8 are linked together. As I mentioned, in Romans chapter 7, he's describing this war within us, the divided self, and how the law of God comes alongside the believer and works in our hearts, first in the unbeliever, to expose sin and to even excite sin in our hearts. But even in the believer's life, the law works to, to stir us up even to more blatant sin sometimes. We can often try to fight this war in our own power, and we end up suffering massive defeat and often massive discouragement, which is why Paul comes along in Romans chapter 8, and he wants to be, bring some healing balm to our weary and often discouraged and despairing souls. You see, we often question whether or not Romans 8 is true in our lives, and we typically question it for two reasons, when we face ongoing sin and when we face difficult suffering. We, we question whether or not God really loves us, don't we? When, we? when we really struggle with sin, we wrestle with, with this reality, God, do, do you really still love me? God, am I actually saved? And when we suffer, God, God, really, are you still there? Am I really a child of yours? What Paul does in Romans chapter 8 is, is he, he talks to us about the absolute security that we have in Christ through the gospel, regardless of how you feel. Because, because listen, let's be honest, oftentimes we are more ruled by feelings than we are by facts. And in the struggle with sin in particular, we can often feel that certain things aren't true, and we need the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and to press into our hearts. This is what's actually true. This is the facts. This is what God says about you. And it's so reassuring to our souls to hear God speak to us in this way. The Christian 
needs great assurance as we struggle with and fight against sin in this life, that ongoing battle, because you see, the Christian is actually a half-rescued person. The Christian is a half-rescued person. That's why we still struggle to live under grace. That's why we have this war within. That's why we experience this divided self. Here's what I mean by that. We have been justified. We've been made right with God, and we've been reconciled to Him, but we are not yet saved in the fullest and final sense of that word. We live in the already but not yet. We, we live in this tension of being saved yet not being fully liberated from indwelling sin in our lives. We live in the newness of the Spirit who dwells within us, and at the same time, sin still dwells within us. And listen, Christians, listen, even, even as you struggle and even as you fall as a believer in Jesus Christ, even when the defeat of Romans 7 feels all-encompassing, Romans 8 is given to remind you and to remind me that you are indeed secure in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because of anything you've done, only because what Jesus has done. And what we first need to hear from God in order to enjoy our gospel security is this very first verse that he, he gives us, this very first statement, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is what he wants us to grasp this morning. So why, why is there now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Here's the reason. First, because Jesus sets you free from the power of sin. Jesus sets you free from the power of sin this statement is the essence of the gospel, that there is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the hope of the gospel. But you see, in order for us to understand this idea, we first need to understand the cause of condemnation. I want you to notice that Paul does not say that there is never any cause for condemnation. He's not saying that there's nothing ever wrong with us, that there was... Uh, no cause at all for this condemnation. In fact, he says just the opposite. There was, in fact, a cause for condemnation, and that cause was sin itself. That's what Romans 7 was revealing, the exceedingly sinfulness of sin that is so pervasive. And, and it's critical that we define sin properly. According to Romans in Romans chapter 1, all sin is rebellion against God. At its very heart, it's a failure to worship God as God. It's a failure to give thanks to God for all that He is and all that He's done. All sin, fundamentally, listen, is rebellion against Creator God. All sin. And, and it's our sin, it's that rebellion, it's our guilt that was the reason for the just condemnation that was against us. What does this word condemnation actually mean? Let me give you a, a really quick definition that I pulled up this week. Here's what one person said. It, it is a complete public disapproval and execution of judgment against someone. That's a potent statement. It is a complete public disapproval and execution of judgment against someone. You see, according to the Scriptures, condemnation is actually the, the very opposite of justification. And Paul has laid this out for us. If you flip back in your Bible to Romans chapter 5, let me just show you two verses. Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> look at how he frames this for us. 
He describes all of humanity as being in Adam. And in verse 16, he says this, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, speaking of Adam's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought this, look, condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Look down at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So you can break it down simply like this. Condemnation actually means we are not in the right with God, and in fact, we are experiencing the weight of His wrath against us. The flip side of that is to be justified. It is to have somebody else take that wrath in our place and and therefore to be made right with God, to be standing in in right status with God. Apart from Jesus, all of humanity is condemned. Apart from Jesus, you were condemned and I was condemned. And we walk around with this sign over us that literally says condemned, apart from Christ. In fact, the the Greek word that Paul uses here for condemned, it kind of carries this connotation of this idea of this sign declaring that we're condemned. You can imagine it like this. I I printed this out this morning. I thought it would be a helpful visual. Every one of us, apart from Christ, walks around like this. And you're like, well, I don't don't really like that. Like, I, I, I get it, but guess what? What the scriptures indicate is that you and I have actually chosen to put the sign over our heads. It's like we, we picked the sign out ourselves in our rebellion against God, and we placed it above ourselves, and we decorated it with neon lights. I didn't have time to do that this morning. That would have been epic. And we clicked the switch on. You click, and we walked around. We're like, condemned. It's the sign we chose. It's a staggering thing to think about. The Scriptures want you to know that apart from Christ, you chose condemnation. The sign over our heads, because we wouldn't worship God as God, we worship the creation rather than the creator. And so God brought His law. This is what we've seen in in Romans. He brought His law to show His absolute perfection and thereby to show man's total imperfection and and utter inability to save himself. The law comes and reveals to us how exceedingly sinful we truly are to show us that we are truly guilty before God. It's an act of God's grace. The law teaches us that we are standing condemned apart from Christ. Jesus, in fact, in John 3, 18, these verses will be on the screen. Listen to what Jesus himself says. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. A little bit later in John three thirty six, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. For those who are not in Christ, listen, you need to hear what the Scriptures say to you. It tells you that there is nowhere to run, that you are currently living under condemnation, under the very wrath of God. But for those who are not in Christ, here's what you also need to hear from the Scriptures, that God has demonstrated His love for you. 
But even in doing that and sending his own son, as we'll see in a moment, listen, you need to hear this. He is absolutely opposed to all evil and sin. If he wasn't, he would not be just. He would not be holy. He would not be worthy of our worship and praise. And choosing condemnation, in choosing to reject God and to rebel against God, in choosing condemnation, we are embracing that as our identity, our fundamental identity. Choosing to identify yourself apart from God and standing in direct opposition to Him, and hence the sign above your head that you have chosen. But the Scriptures come along here and say, but now… But now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Outside of Jesus, we are condemned, but now we live in this new era of redemptive history. The two most important words in this passage are not no condemnation. The two most important words in this passage are in Christ. And you cannot understand no condemnation unless you understand in Christ, which is why Paul has spent so much time already developing this massive theme. There's no condemnation only for those who are in Christ. Not that you, you like Jesus, that you like Christ, not that you think you and Jesus are good or that you're cool with, with God. That's not what we're talking about here. Not even that you think highly of Jesus. That you are in Him is the key idea. It is the central idea of the Christian life. Paul developed this in Romans chapter 6, that you have died in Christ. His death became your death. You were immersed in His death as He died for you. His life from the grave is your life. It's given to you. That is your source of all life and existence, spiritually speaking. You are united to Him in a vital union, and you are thereby identified. Your fundamental source of identity is now Jesus Christ, being in Him. And look how Paul unfolds this in verse 2. He says, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Condemnation brought death, but being in Christ brings life, a newness of life. He tells us that we're no longer under condemnation because we have been set free from sin's power, its rule over us. It no longer has the power to condemn us. And Paul contrasts two different laws or principles. When he talks about the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life, he's talking about two principles that rule or govern our lives, two powers that are dominant influences over our lives. And he says that we have been transitioned or transferred from one power to another. The law, when it comes from the outside in contact with sin, it exposes it and it condemns it and its results are death in the sinner. Some have called this the law on the wall, referring to what a lot of churches have done in the past. You walk into a, an old church building and they would have the Ten Commandments on the wall. There's the law on the wall. It, it has power and authority over us and we cannot get ourselves 
out from under its power. We need somebody to liberate us, to break us free from its power, and to place us under a new and better power. And the law, which sets the believer free from the power of the old, is the law of the spirit of life, this new principle, this new power that comes through union with Christ. And this new power breaks the, the power of sin in the life of a believer. And this is what happens when the Spirit of Christ takes the obedience of Christ and imputes it to our account. We are cleansed and we are changed from the inside out. This is new covenant language where the Spirit of God takes the law on the wall and makes it the law on our heart. New hearts, new passions, new desires, new ability. And it is the Spirit of God who provides this victory, and the Spirit is the possession of every true child of God. And you know, part of what Paul is, is teaching us here is that the security in this victory actually provides the strength for ongoing victory. In other words, when you grasp the gospel security that is yours in Christ, it actually empowers you to live a life of increased victory over sin. We lose the battle against sin only when we engage the enemy without the resources that are being supplied by the Spirit of God. And here's the reality, Christian. Listen, God never intended us to go this on our own. God didn't just save us, kind of wipe the slate clean, and then say, now go for it. Fill that blank slate up with all your righteousness. Go figure out how to do it on your own. No, He comes to live within us. And he makes the promise of John 15, 5 true, that apart from me, you can do nothing. And in fact, he says just the opposite. With him, we can do all things. Yesterday, uh, I had the privilege of uh, preaching um, a funeral message at my, my granddad's funeral. My granddad was 97 years old. He lived a long life, and he, he was a faithful, godly man. And I had the chance to, to hear my, my dad and my uncle stand up and give their eulogies and talk about my, my granddad's legacy and his life. And both of them remarked about one thing that I knew was true, but listening to them talk about it, it, it just stirred this up in my heart. What does it mean? What does it mean to truly abide in Christ and to, to draw strength from that vital union with him? They, they said as kids, what they remember most about their dad was every day that they walked up from their, their bedroom in the basement, they walk up, they would see their dad either with his Bible open before him or him on his knees calling out to God. And love and listen, that, that those two things right there are two of the most supreme acts of dependence upon the Lord, two of the most supreme acts of how we draw near to God and access that the grace of God and the power of God to fight and find victory over sin. And I promise you this, if you commit to those two things each and every morning, I guarantee you this, that you will be less inclined to draw strength from your own flesh and your own power and your own ability, and you will see increasingly more your own insufficiency, and you will learn to to love and depend on Christ more and more each day as you see the power of his word and the power of his spirit begin to work within you to change your desires, to give you strength and ability you never thought possible and to see increased victory over sin in your life. This is what God is calling us to in this chapter. The victory of Romans 8 results from living in union with Christ Jesus, sustained and empowered by the Spirit of God. There is therefore now no condemnation. 
Jesus sets you free from the power of sin. And secondly, because Jesus sets you free from the penalty of sin. He goes on to develop this. For God, in verse 3, he says, has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You see, the law is is our problem, but it's not the problem, right? We saw that in Romans chapter 7. We are condemned under the law. In fact, Paul says in Romans that there's no excuse for Jews or Gentiles. The law is going to condemn us all. But the law itself is is not the actual problem. Paul has said that the law is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. But this good thing couldn't save us. It was weakened by the flesh, he says. In other words, just like he said in Romans 7, we are the problems. It's sin in me. We in the flesh, following our sinful desires, are the problem. And you see, it reminds us that the Romans 7 experience is actually self-imposed. It's the result of fleeing the empowering work of the Spirit, fleeing abiding in Christ, and instead trusting in our own strength. But look at what he says. This is so amazing. But what the law couldn't do, God did. How did he do that? He unfolds it for us in such a a really tight and jam-packed way. In fact, many commentators believe that this was actually a a creedal confession that was adopted by the church. It's so kind of clear and concise and thoughtfully laid out that this became something of a normative statement to help people understand the gospel. Here's what he says first. Let's just break it down bit by bit. He sends his own son. He sends his own son. Now, the imagery that that kind of this evokes in my mind is is that of a rescue operation. This whole scene, I picture a rescue operation. And in this rescue operation, there is a person in need, but they can't even call for help. They can't even pick up the phone to dial 911 and get a dispatcher to send an ambulance. You see, this person is so wounded, they are so destroyed, they're unconscious, They actually need somebody to know exactly where they are, exactly what the problem is, and to go and find them without them even calling. They're fully dependent upon somebody seeing their their desperate need and desperate situation. And that's the exact situation that we see here. As God looks at humanity, God sees our spiritual condition. And here's what the scriptures teach. We weren't calling for God. (laughs) We were enemies of God, rebelling against God. And here's the other problem. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We couldn't call to God for help, even if we wanted to. We desperately needed God to look down upon us, to see us caught in the quicksand of our own sin and filth, to see the destruction that sin was producing in our lives. And we needed him, listen, we needed him to open our blind eyes to that reality. We needed him to breathe life into our dead and weary souls, our sin-sick souls. We needed him, and we needed the illuminating power of the Spirit of God to even show us our need for Jesus Christ. And God saw us in this condition, and here's what he did to come and get us. 
He sent his own son to rescue us. Let, let me hear those words again. This is staggering. He sent his own son. I feel like I spend most of my days trying to protect my sons from danger. It's all self-inflicted. But God looks at the danger. Listen, God, God looks at the danger we're in, and he knows the danger he has to send his son into, and he says, I will send him to rescue you. He sends his own son directly into danger, into harm's way for us. He sends his own son directly to death for us. That's what he says next. Did you catch this? He sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's phrased in kind of an interesting way, isn't it? It's very intentional. You see, in order to rescue us, God had to come as a man. Not just look like a man. That's not what he's talking about in the likeness of sinful flesh. No, he's not like he was like a man. He, he had to take on humanity, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he had to come as a, as a man, a human being, into a sinful world, yet he himself was without sin. Jesus had to come as a man to rescue men, but he had to be sinless to rescue sinners. The sinless one would come. And because he sent his own son for sin, listen to this, what he says next. He says for sin, in other words, to be a sin offering. That's what that word indicates for us. That for sin is used in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to a sin offering, a sacrificial offering. And the imagery can't get any clearer, especially in light of coming off of Easter Sunday and, and Good Friday, right, that Jesus Christ, he was not hanging on the cross that Good Friday as merely a good example of what it looks like to sacrifice for each other. He was actually hanging as a sacrifice for sin. Look at what he says next, that he was condemned. He condemned excuse me, sin in the flesh. Jesus became our substitute. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, right? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took our sins upon him. That certificate of debt that we had accumulated for all of our disobedience and rebellion, he took it all. And as he hung on the cross, he was taking that full weight of condemnation that was deserved for every single person who was chosen in him. He took the full wrath of God that was deserved for you and me. God sent his own son into the world to take that condemnation upon himself. And he took it so thoroughly, so completely, he absorbed it so utterly that now there is no, now therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He took it all so completely, there is no condemnation left to be poured out onto you and me who deserved it most. Hallelujah. This is the God who saves, and this is the God who secures. Listen, when Jesus chose you, because the Scriptures say He chose you before the foundation of the earth, he willingly chose the condemnation. Consider this. He willingly, in that moment, chose the condemnation that you willingly chose in your rebellion against him. 
So here's, here's what that means for you and for me. Listen, our condemnation cannot rest on whether or not we've had a good day or a bad day. He's taken it all and there's none left to give if you're in Christ today. He's taken every last drop of condemnation. You, you may, I know this is true of some of you. You may be haunted here in this place by past sins in your life. You may be, be just wrecked when you think about your, your past sins, your past life. There may be one particular sin that you just, you look at and you can't seem to get over and you feel so condemned all the time and you wonder if God is actually forgiving you, if God is actually going to save you, if you're actually one day going to end up in heaven because of that one sin that you committed that one point in your life. But listen, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's already been given to Christ. What about your present sins? Maybe you've had a bad week. Maybe it's been a terrible month or a terrible year. Maybe you just woke up this morning. You just, you know, you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and it's been a terrible day. What about present sins? Listen, all of them paid for by Christ in full. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. What about future sins? Listen, some of us in this room are going to commit some incredibly stupid sins, even some horrific sins, some horrible sins. What about those sins? Listen, here's what the Bible says. They're paid for in Jesus Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing that anyone could ever accuse you of. Listen, this is so good. Nothing that anyone would ever try to hold over your head will ever condemn you before God. Nothing that a person says, nothing that a devil says, nothing that you want to say to yourself will ever condemn you before God because Jesus Christ has paid it in full. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why, why did he do this? Look at this finally. Jesus sets you free from the pursuit of sin. Jesus sets you free from the pursuit of sin. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see that victory secured by Jesus on the cross is given to us and now with His Spirit within us, we live it out, and it becomes a confirmation of that victory. The indwelling presence of the Spirit produces fruit in our lives. We no longer look to the law as if we could fulfill it and then be justified, somehow be made right with God. Here's what you need to understand. Obedience is not the grounds for your justification. It is the fruit of your justification. We, we can and are to fulfill the law by the Spirit in us. That's what Paul is teaching us here. We are set free, not just that we might escape condemnation of sin, although that is marvelous and true, but we are set free from the actual pursuit of sin in our lives. And we have been set free instead for the pursuit of sanctification, for, for holiness and for righteousness, progressively being made more like Jesus Christ in this life. We need to understand two aspects of what he, he means here in verse 4 when he says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I think there's two components to this. The first is, is this, 
that Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf. He's given us His perfect righteousness. But the other side of that, I think, is very clearly driven by the very end of this phrase here, this, this verse, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. It's pointing us towards this ongoing fulfilling in our own lives. His righteousness is now our righteousness. Our salvation is grounded upon His righteousness, but now sanctification is worked out through our righteousness, which is produced by His Spirit in us. The perfect demand of the law has already been met. Jesus' account has been credited to ours, okay? Jesus took His righteousness, you know, control-C, control-V, copied pasted right to our account. And and as a result, listen, he looks at each one of us and he says, I am well pleased with you, my beloved child. He sees you as he sees his own beloved son. And, And that means this, Christian, that behavior is not the cause of our union with Christ. It is the mark of our union with Christ. And it is necessary, as Paul is teaching here, to be a demonstration of the fact that you are indeed saved. And when you see that in your life, it simply brings greater assurance and anchors you even more in the security of the gospel. I love what Augustine says. He says, law was given that grace might be sought, but grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. So so here's the question. What exactly does the fulfillment of the law look like in our lives? Paul doesn't get into it in depth here, but he's going to give us a, a glimpse of this in Romans chapter 13. Flip there with me. And we won't dive too deeply into this right now, but I, I want you to see the heart of this call to the Christian. In Romans chapter 13, look at verse 8 through 10. Here's what he says. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Christian, what does it mean to fulfill the law? One simple word, love. Love God and love others as yourself. The center of all obedience is love. And this is so helpful when you think about the gospel. You see, the reason Jesus died was an act of love that would create love. We are saved by love so that we can walk in love. And this, loved ones, is worked out in our community. It's worked out in our church family. It's worked out in the world around us. This is how, by the way, the world will know that we are His disciples, that we love one another. How we interact together as a family, what we choose to divide over or devour one another over, that is not a mark of godliness and maturity. That is a mark of of satanic influence to split apart the body of Christ. 
It's a mark of immaturity in the life of a believer. But you see, the mark of maturity in the Christian life is this right here. It is love for one another. It is love that drives us to honor and serve. And we take those negatives of the the commandments, thou shalt not, and we reverse them into what must I do to serve one another? How can I work hard and give? How can I be someone who speaks the truth? How can I be someone who is filled with thankfulness and joy? How can I sacrifice of my own life in order to bless and to serve another? Love is the center of all obedience. Christ died to fulfill the law for us and then fulfill the law through us by the power of the Spirit of God in us. And here's the awesome news that Paul is driving into our hearts this morning. Even when we fail, we are not crushed because he was crushed in our place. Even when we sin, we are not condemned because he was condemned in our place. Remember the sign that we chose apart from Christ? Condemned this here? Some of you maybe are are watching online or you're sitting in here today, and this is actually still who you are. You are living right now in rejection and rebellion against God. You've heard the message of the gospel, or you're hearing it even now, but you are choosing rebellion. You're choosing to be condemned. And God is is telling you today, He's wanting you to hear today, listen, I, I have been condemned for you. Choose the condemned one who took your condemnation so that therefore there can be no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. Choose him today. Choose him by repenting of your sin, by seeing that, that he took your condemnation and he placed it upon himself. Repent of your sin, believe in faith and what he did for you in paying for that sin. He took it all, he bore the wrath of God, he rose victorious so that you can have new life in him, set free from sin's power, set free from sin's penalty, and set free from sin's pursuit. But Christian, let me speak to you for a moment. Some of you in here today, you feel condemned. Maybe you often find yourself living in that place. You live in fear that God is going to punish you for some act of sin in your life or some ongoing sin in your life. Listen, God for sure chastises His children. God rebukes His children sometimes, but God never condemns His children. Some of us Christians think that every time we struggle in sin, we're back under condemnation. Listen, you're not and you never will be. Never. We can't function on feelings. We must learn to function on the facts. And the fact of the gospel is this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's what you do. Listen, preach the gospel to yourself. If you find yourself in this place of despair and condemnation, preach the gospel to yourself. Repent of your sin. Turn back to Jesus Christ, but trust in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cling to the grace of the gospel. Find your security there. Stop picking the sign back up. Stop trying to steal it off of the back of Jesus and put it over your head. God isn't holding the sign over your head any longer because Jesus took the sign in your place. He was condemned so that you will never be condemned again. And when he said it was finished, it was. There is therefore 
Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, loved ones, Christian, if you're a Christian here today, there is no sign anymore. It's gone. Never, never to be held over you again because God has loved you and sent his son for you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for the grace of the gospel this morning. And God, we pray that you would help us to live in this gospel security this morning, believing with all of our hearts, Lord, no matter how we feel, God, no matter how we may struggle sometimes with sin and be inclined, Lord, to beat ourselves up over our sin or pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, God, would you draw us back to the security that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Lord, if indeed we are in Christ Jesus, And God, for those who are not this morning, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, even now, Lord, that you, by the power of your Spirit, would open their eyes, strip away the blinders, Lord, breathe life into their heart, breathe desire into their soul for you, O Lord. Cause them, O Lord, in your loving kindness, Lord, would you lead them to repentance? Would you break them of their pride and rebellion? And God, would you draw them to your love and to your grace? Would you grant them forgiveness and peace and rest and security in Jesus Christ today? Give us this security now, O Lord. Help us to cling to the truth of the gospel. We worship you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.